Thanksgiving week, folks, and welcome to the Fallon Forum. As always, we try to bring you those independent voices and that civil dialogue that cuts across the gaping political divide. I'm Ed Fallon, I'm your host, and we're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa, also known as the culinary and cultural crossroads of America. So there, Minneapolis. Hey, uh, if you value what we do, we could sure use your support. Uh, visit the donations page on the Fallon Forum website, or if you run a small business or nonprofit doing good work in the world, uh, no nonprofits doing bad work need apply. You can also become a sponsor. And uh, speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Uh, check out Gateway's catering and floral services as well. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has cared for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. All right, later today, uh, Richard Maynard is going to join us. Uh, Richard knows a thing or two about what it's like to be grumpy because he has played the title role of Scrooge in A Christmas Carol for nine years. Uh, one of my questions for Richard, when you retire as Scrooge, maybe Donald Trump can take over? Uh, seems like a natural, yeah? Uh, anyway, uh, also we'll be talking with uh, Jean Hackle about her book, Teresa et al., it's the story of a Minnesota woman who is prevented from having an abortion. And as Jean told me earlier, the book is also about healing the deep and bitter divisions in our country. And finally, later in the program for our farm and food segment, Kathy Burns and I will be discussing lab-raised meat. And uh, yeah, I'm losing my appetite just thinking about it, but we got to talk about it. But first, uh, Joseph Gerson joins me. He's the president of the Campaign for Peace disarmament and common security. He's also the vice president of the International Peace Bureau. And since 1976, the year I graduated from high school, Joseph has served the American Friends Service Committee as director of the Peace and Economic Security Program. Uh, Joseph, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Hey, so it seems like old news now, but I want to revisit the letter from 30 U.S. Congress members uh, Democrats, uh, members of the Progressive Caucus, a letter that called on President Biden to employ diplomacy in Ukraine. And it seemed like a fairly innocuous letter. It seemed like good timing, in my opinion. But apparently the signatories on that letter got smacked down pretty firm. <laughs> and they, re they, they withdrew the letter immediately. And uh, your organization was one of a handful that had endorsed the letter. Um, how do you feel about what transpired after that letter was released? Well, you know, it's sort of like censoring books. You know, it got much more attention than it would have gotten if it had been forcefully withdrawn. You know, the letter was, was was interesting. I mean, a number of the peace movement had questions about it right. because most of the letter was devoted to celebrating uh, President Biden supporting the Ukrainian resistance to the Russian invasion, providing weapons and so on. But it concluded with a call uh, that uh, negotiations be made a, uh, a U.S. A priority. What was interesting, a couple of things happened. I mean, on the one hand, uh, Congresswoman Jayapal, who kind of led the, the, the process, right. her office didn't, didn't uh, keep people who had signed the letter uh, early on, keep them informed about the, the timing. And you know, the, the situation of the war changed and some got cold feet. Uh, when the uh, when the letter was finally uh, let out just before the election, 
Uh, but what's interesting is, is I've talked to to staff members of uh, members of some of the signatories, and on the one hand, they tell me that there were very serious threats made by uh, Speaker Pelosi, uh, but there was no real opposition to it in the White House. Uh, and since then, we have seen uh, General Milley and others in, in high levels of the United States uh, saying that maybe it's time to begin negotiating to see if we can end this war. Hmm. And so did uh, did your organization have any kind of response in, in writing or else otherwise to the withdrawal of the letter? We didn't put out a, a statement on it, but we've been working with, with a number of people both here in the United States and in Europe. Okay. And at the moment, there's a lot of discussion about the possibility of a Christmas truce. You know, if you go back to World War One, uh, one juncture in, in the middle of, of trench warfare, uh, a Christmas truce that stopped killing at the time of, right, of right. Christmas yep. uh, was called. Uh, and there was a sense that this, if we can win a, a Christmas truce this time around, which would go from the from the the Western uh, Christmas to the Eastern Orthodox Christmas, it could provide a foundation for uh, extending the uh, the ceasefire. Uh, and and turning it into a uh, into the foundation for negotiations, uh, and, and I think you know what's important is for us to be talking about this, encouraging members of Congress to think right. about it, and you know, putting the idea out as widely as we any, can. Any any idea how President Biden feels about that kind of a truce? I haven't heard on that. No. Okay. No, I'm here. You know, I'm trying. I'm trying to think through what it says when the progressive caucus of the of the U.S. Congress. Writes a letter. I mean, it, my assessment of the letter is, and I've read it, it's fairly, it's very moderate. moderate. It's, there's nothing particularly um, hard hitting about it. Uh, it. It recognizes the, you know, the current reality about, you know, trying to trying to help Ukraine defend itself. But it says, you know, it it it, it, it confronts the reality that if, if this war continues, I mean, we're talking about a, a country, Russia, that is armed to the teeth with nuclear weapons. And we're talking about a leader who I don't think I don't think Putin's a madman myself, but I think he's very dangerous. And so why would we why would we not want to go the diplomatic route as fast and as as, as seriously as possible? And to me, that's what the letter was saying. And for that to be yeah, shot so, down. So, you know, I think the unfortunate thing is that the Democratic Party has largely become a war party. My understanding from from congressional staffers uh, is that. Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi, made a very serious threat, which 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 intimidated a number of them. Do you know and what that? Do you, do you know what that threat to, was? I don't I don't know the content of the threat, but what we also know from Pelosi is, you know, I mean, she, look, this is a woman who went to Taiwan, yeah, against the against the advice of the of the of the Biden administration, uh, which absolutely heightened uh, the the tensions with China with lasting consequences in terms of, of, of the intensity of China's pressure on Ukraine. Uh, and then she turned around and went, went to Ukraine uh, in ways designed to kind of reinforce the ongoing war. So, so you know, I, think we, you know, we, I think we want to think, or many of us want to think of, of the Democrats as, as good guys, but to recognize mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a broad party. The, the Progressive Caucus is a yeah. minority within the party. Uh, and um, you know, we need to be really talking about what are what are the real interests right. of not only the U.S. people but but people in Ukraine and elsewhere. And as you said, the the reality is that 
Russia does remain a, a very serious threat. Uh, you know, Russian nuclear doctrine says that if the Russian state is in jeopardy, if it's threatened, uh, that's the point at which it can use nuclear weapons. Now, I don't think Ukraine inherently threatens uh, uh, the, the survival of the Russian state. But if the war continues going south for Russia, Putin's rule uh, becomes in, in question. And that, and when you look at the, the identity between Putin and the state, uh, that's when you could, might find the possibility yeah. of the use of uh, limited nuclear war, yeah. uh, tactical nuclear weapons used in, in Ukraine, which in turn pitches us into a really massive crisis. Yeah. So is, I mean, that was, uh, we could have a long conversation about Tulsi Gabbard, um, who was a Democratic congresswoman from Hawaii, who has kind of gone off the uh, off the uh, charts in terms of the other direction now, um, campaigning for people like Carrie Lake. But one of her contentions that I, I would agree with is that the, the Democratic Party has become, you know, is kind of controlled by some, she calls them warmongers, that might be a bit strong, but they're, they're, they're folks who are, are, are tied to the established approach to dealing with conflict that involves, you know, a military response. I mean, that's been the history of the U.S. And, and here, yeah, you know, just a broken clock is, is right twice a day. Uh, and, you know, the unfortunate reality is the United States as a nation has been at war for most of its history. It's yeah. not like most other countries. Uh, it's deep in our society. And we have to remember that it was uh, President Eisenhower, a conservative Republican, right, who warned about the danger of a military industrial complex in his valedictory speech. Uh, you know, he talked about how its, uh, it's tentacles in, in our communities across the country, uh, you know, but it basically subverts democracy. Yeah. And so what you have now is the is the system, the structure. Whenever there's a, a new major uh, weapon system uh, to be to be built, you know, companies like Boeing or Raytheon, the others, you know, they subcontract uh, to to have uh, yep. parts made for it. In the majority of, of congressional districts, you know, which member of Congress is going to be opposing uh, bringing jobs and income into their districts? Uh, and you know, look at the massive amount of, of, of contributions to political campaigns uh, by right. you know, by, right. by the, the military producers. Yes. So you know, we, we face a fairly deep structural problem in this country. Yeah, and another source of big contributions to political campaigns, of course, comes from the oil industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, we saw a big development this week uh, with uh, COP27 uh, pushing out at the very last minute a loss and damage uh, fund. Uh, that uh, overall seems uh, to be a good thing, although there's no specifics about who's going to receive it, who's going to pay it. But the commitment to working on the fund is a is a big start. Um, again, that's in that's in the face of it, just despite all the pressure from oil and oil lobbyists to keep things going the way they are. But um, I see an interface between that uh, that loss and damage fund and the concerns we have about global security. It seems like if that fund is seriously targeted to nations that are both at risk of climate chaos and also the accompanying, you know, economic and political destabilization that comes with those climate impacts, it seems like this fund might have the capacity to, in some ways, mitigate that that risk. What do you think? So I, I think it's a Band-Aid. Uh, Band-Aids are good things to have, uh, but they don't necessarily deal with, with deep wounds. Uh, right. So 
clearly, you know, they'll spend the next year uh, trying to figure out how this fund is going to work, who's going to get the money, who's going to give it. Uh, but it's not going to stop the rise of the oceans. Uh, and as we know, you know, some 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 low lying countries. I mean, just look what happened in Pakistan. Uh, are right. in, in 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 massive danger. Some of the islands in the Pacific are going to, you know, with people, uh, with countries, with cultures, and history of civilization are going to go underwater. The other piece that's there is that, you know, in in the in the in the fighting, you know, the, the political struggle uh, within the uh, COP twenty seven. Uh, you know, there was a big fight over whether or not to hold to the one point five Celsius degree rise in right. in temperatures. Uh, and and that was barely held on to. Right. Uh, and more, there was a huge fight uh, over uh, whether to call for an end of, of uh, uh, burning fossil fuels, uh, you know, led but by a combination of the oil companies, but also oil producers, Saudi Arabia, sure, yeah. the, the other Emirates. Right. Uh, and and in the end, they they get a weak compromise. They they they, they said, well, we won't do call for an end of burning coal. But oil and gas is going to go forward. Uh, yeah. And the next COP28 is going to be held in Oman, another oil company, you know, another oil emirate uh, in a country dependent on Saudi Arabia and, and, uh, and another, other, other uh, oil producing states. So we have a long ways to go. Uh, you know, the reality is that you know, we face these two existential threats really to human survival, the, the uh, climate chaos climate uh, emergency uh, and, and and the danger of nuclear war and we have to stay focused and our, our foreign and military policies should really be be focused on, on preventing these two uh, these two calamities yeah and and I, I don't know I, again there, there a lot of people are celebrating this week because oh cope 27 accomplished this we didn't see it coming uh, it was hard to drag China on board the US held out to the last minute um, but you know again it's it, 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 the ink is not dry yet. We have to wait and see how it all plays mm-hmm. out in terms of the amount of money committed, the, uh, the who's going to receive it, and all that. But um, but I think there's no doubt, uh, regardless of what this particular fund does, there's absolutely no doubt that climate change is making the world a less safe place. And you know, there's untold human suffering that's already been happening because of the destabilization that occurs. But you imagine it getting to the point where you've got nuclear nations. I mean, you mentioned earlier, you know, Russia, <laughs> you know, when the Russian state feels threatened, or let's be real, when Val- when Vladimir Putin feels threatened, you know, that, that, that option, the nuclear option might be on the table. And so, you know, it just, uh, it's, it's disconcerting to see just how, you know, how precarious of an edge we are now walking. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, you know, the, the, the sense in, in much of the world uh, is that if we're going to make progress in terms of reducing the nuclear danger, it has to begin here in the United States. I mean, the reality is, as, as, as much as we have been traumatized by what Putin has done with his nuclear threats, the reality is the United States has done this many, many times uh, during international crises and war. Uh, the United States has, with with Russia, obviously the yeah. most potent uh, nuclear arsenal, right. enough to imposed over winter many times over. Uh, so, it, you know, it, it, the, the world sees if we're going to begin to build back, if we're going to contain nuclear proliferation, 
which is the danger of nuclear proliferation has actually increased with the uh, with mm-hmm. the Ukraine war. We have to take steps here yeah. in the United States. Joseph, I got to run to a break. Uh, I really appreciate you joining us. Uh, folks, we've been talking with Joseph Gerson, the president of the Campaign for Peace, Disarmament, and Common Security. Uh, thank you, Joseph, for taking time to be with us today. Thank you. And just, just to say, you know, if we want peace and justice, we have to work for it. It's not going to descend like manna from heaven. <laughs> True enough. We know that. Hey, folks, this is Ed Fallon. We've got to take a short break, and when we return... We're going to be talking with Scrooge. Uh, No, Donald Trump is not my guest this week, uh, but good guess. Uh, Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. You know, at a time when big corporations control most of the media, the niche we provide here is more important than ever. So, you know, please support what we do. You can go to the Fallon Forum uh, Forum website page, uh, donate. Even better, you can become a monthly sponsor. And uh, speaking of sponsors, thanks to Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Uh, Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. Uh, the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry. Thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis. Owner Mark Clipsham says that no matter how you plan or renovate your project, please use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. That's Architecture by Synthesis. I would now like to welcome to the program Richard Maynard, uh, Richard knows a thing or two about what it's like to be grumpy because he has played the title role of Scrooge in A Christmas Carol in Des Moines for uh, forever. How many years, Richard? Uh, here, I've done it for, uh, this be my ninth time. And, you, and you've done that role previously somewhere else? No, I did. When I was much younger, I played Cratchit. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, so you, four you, times. You gra- as yeah. you got as you got older and grumpier, you graduated from Cratchit to That's Scrooge. That's right. Okay. That's I, right. I'm very I'm, hopeful, to very hateful. Actually, yeah. I'm te- I'm teasing because Richard is one of the least grumpy people I know. Um, no. <laughs> but seriously, you know, I I learned this, Richard, when I was uh, doing a little research for this program. There's a website called Epic Rap Battles of History. And one of those battles is Donald Trump versus Ebenezer Scrooge. And I want to talk about about that. But before we talk about any similarities between Scrooge and Trump, real or imagined, uh, tell us, um, Richard, first of all, how how did a nice guy like you end up getting cast as Ebenezer Scrooge? 
Uh, well, uh, you know, I formed a company or helped. I co- I co-founded a company. Oh, about 14 years ago, called the Repertory Theater of Iowa. It's since morphed into Iowa Stage, which is what we are today. And we wanted to do, uh, we had tried doing something over Christmas, uh, our first year in operation. And uh, and it just had terrible attendance. And I just said, uh, you know, after that, if we ever do something at Christmas, it's going to have the Christmas name in it. <laughs> I don't care if we did Hamlet, we would call it a Christmas Hamlet, you know. <laughs> so anyway, that was kind of the idea. And of course, Christmas Carol. And since I had done this particular version of it before, when I lived on the East Coast, um, when I lived in New York, it was actually done in Massachusetts. I said, well, let's do Christmas Carol. And I think I have just the perfect script for it. And uh, and so that was the script that we used as far as me being cast in it. Basically, because I was well, pretty good actor, and I was <laughs> the oldest member of the company, right. you know, by, you know, so anyway, that's, that's you know, how, how it came to me. We just sort of, yeah. in the company, cast each other. Right, and you know, I have I have one theatrical experience under my belt, uh, Richard, and that was years ago when I was a student at Drake, this is back in the 80s, uh, our Spanish class uh, performed uh, Aesop's Fables in Spanish. And okay. I got to be Aesop for the exact same reason you got to be Scrooge. Aesop was the oldest member of the cast, the, yeah. the, and I was the oldest student in the class. So <laughs> there you go. But, but now, you know, this is the time of the year. I mean, a Christmas Carol. I'm pretty sure Des Moines is not the only place in the U.S. You know, in December, that's going to be where you can find a performance of a Christmas Carol. It's oh my pretty gosh, popular. no, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the Guthrie's had a. Uh, Production of it, I think. Well, they've had different productions of it, but they've done it for thirty some years. And yeah, it's, yeah, it's done all over. And why? I mean, this was this was written back in the eighteen hundreds, or am I? Am I yeah, yeah, yeah. eighteen forty three. Eighteen forty three. Exact. So, yeah. I mean, here, the book was. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And here it is, still immensely popular. How do yeah. you? What do you? How? What do you say about that? What? What do you attribute that to? Well, you know, I think Chris, that I it. It kind of builds on, on itself. I mean, it is a wonderful story, but at its very, very core, it's a story about uh, redemption. And you know, it's interesting that you have this, uh, you know, the thing about with uh, Trump and, and uh, Scrooge, because I had said at one time, you know, if uh, Scrooge can find redemption, who knows, perhaps Donald Trump can too. <laughs> but it's uh, in... You know, but that's really, really what it is. And it's through the, you know, these spirits of Christmas. But, you know, he's writing this at a pretty dark time. Uh, it's a very political story. I mean, it's a very entertaining story. How, and I, how, and, how, and how, a lot of productions, they really tone that, the, they really tone the, the social part, maybe the, the social message down and, you know, and just make it kind of, um, so, you know, a, a, a musical. 18, wait, yep. hold it, 1840s in England. Um, yeah, 1840s, you know, pre- the Industrial Revolution, sure. there's real equi- uh, wage inequality there. Okay, so so this was a bit this was a bit of a commentary on those inequities. Absolutely, it was. And Absolutely, it, it, it was. And it yes. was it was criticized and, and maybe poorly received by some in the upper class because of that. I don't that I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it it. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't know that it attacks them, that it, it, it really gets into the core of what caused that. It's just, but it is about, uh, 
hmm. wealth and as it's around i mean i'm sure there's some people that didn't like it because here right. the one wealthy guy is just as mean-spirited <laughs> as could be right you know when they're asking for donations at one part his line is and this is for the poor you know that's just basically they say it for the poor destitute and uh, i you know i say well why don't they just go to um uh, you know, there's places for them. Why don't they just go there? And they said, yeah. well, you know, some of them would rather die. And Scrooge's answer is they would rather die. They'd better do it and decrease the surplus population. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty heartless. Uh, that's you know, pretty um, heartless, And yeah. I, my impression is, again, that uh, timing-wise, that this that A Christmas Carol was written uh, before the Irish potato famine, which is a big, a big historical uh-huh. moment in my family's uh, history. Uh, but probably not all that, uh, you know, probably around the same time that uh, Jonathan Swift wrote his uh, uh, modest proposal, which was um, biting sarcasm about what to do with the excessive population in Ireland. Instead of just letting them die, they could be served up as food. Uh, oh, uh, gosh, yes, well, I remember and, and, Yeah, and, and he was, <laughs> he, he got his share of flack for that as well, so... Yeah, Probably um, some people took him literally. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe they did. Yeah, and maybe some would have. Maybe some would have thought that Scrooge's suggestion to merely let the excess population die would have been a good idea as well. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, you're right. I, I think you know nowadays we still have. Uh, we're certainly dealing with some of the same problems: uh, poverty, injustice, uh, inequities, and so maybe that's one reason why a Christmas Carol is still still very popular. And maybe also just because it's a very it's a very uplifting story. Yeah, it, 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 yeah well, it is. It, it is, and it's very funny, and it's very entertaining. But he he, um, you know, he, he he does, you know, try to he 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 does particularly in the novel. He really digs into the yeah. darker side of what uh, of what's uh, 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 happening there, and and greed is the big is another big subject right. here. Greed, yep. So no. now, be, before you before you go on stage and get into your Scrooge mode, do you have to do you have to do you have to do something to get ready for that? Like 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 look at look at pictures that make you angry, or or um, no. drink, drink castor oil or something like that. No, I mean there's I, I mean for one thing, I've done it so much, I can pretty much snap into it. Right. I think you know different actors work different ways, right. but I mean if you've rehearsed for four or five weeks, it just kind of gets. It, it just gets into your blood sure, and it's yeah. just there for you, you know. So I, I don't I mainly take quite, I mainly take quite a time. And despite your compliment at the very beginning of this interview, it's not hard for me to be grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> you can ask my significant okay. other. Okay. Well, I, <laughs> well, she can come to me if you get too grumpy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when you, when you get it, I mean, if I, if I think about, if you ask a dozen people, or say just for the sake of simple, f- simple fractions, ten people, who is the most Scrooge-like person in America today? I'll bet at least half would say Donald Trump. And yeah. I'm wondering, do you do you ever do you, do you see any comparisons between you as Scrooge on stage and our our former president, soon to be another you know a candidate for president again? Well, it's all about. Um... Yeah, and for one thing, is self-centeredness, you know. But but here's a big difference between them, is that you know beneath um, 
Scrooge isn't a psychopath like I think <laughs> Donald Trump is. I'm no, I'm serious. I do. Right. I, there's there's something wrong with him. The, you know, otherwise he couldn't have this this um, uh, uh, reclamation. You know, you know, he couldn't have this redemption. That's what I'm trying to say. And he, as opposed to um, Trump, who's an absolute attention seeker, which is you know, I think he probably one of the reasons why he wants to run again. He oh, just loves the attention and well, he doesn't care about anything that happens to anybody else. Scrooge doesn't either, but it's not out of malice as much as just, he's just isolated. He's somebody who does not seek uh, publicity whatsoever. He'd be happy if everyone just left him alone. Right. And Trump you know, is the opposite. He wouldn't be out there in front of the cameras. He right. wouldn't be coming down on a golden escalator if he was right. if he was alive. Um, Trump wants the opposite. He yes. wants to be the center of attention all the time. Yeah. Well, Trump does, not yeah. Scrooge. Right, right. No, right yeah. Scrooge would just be happy if he never had to talk to another human yeah. being. I, I'm, I'm going to guess that, uh, that transforming Scrooge from uh, the unlikable guy he was to the generous... Uh, socially minded individual he became at the end of the play, end of the book. Uh, I'm going to guess that's not the transition transformation we're going to see with Donald Trump. Well, no. I mean, keep um, hope alive, man. I, 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 you know, I had accepted an award. I got an award a few years ago for the Cloris Awards for this role. And I did say there, as I said before, you know, about it. It's not just, uh, it's something more than just a, uh, happy, happy uh, holiday story, Hallmark holiday story. It really has a message to it about redemption. And who knows if if Ebenezer Scrooge can find redemption, maybe there is for Donald Trump. But no, yeah. I don't think so. And I think part of it is, is I think it's, uh, um, you know, that would require some humbleness. <laughs> so unfortunately, we don't. But, you know, no, when I said that, I kind of thought, I still think sometimes I don't expect it by any means yeah. at all. But I thought, boy, wouldn't that be a story yeah. if he just made a hundred? Maybe we need we, we need to we need to round up three witches or three uh, ghosts and send them his way. Yeah, send them down to Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> yeah. So let me let me ask you one yeah. other, one other um, political angle that comes to my mind, um, and it, it's relevant to things that Donald Trump has said and done as well, but. Uh, you know, there's a lot of this, uh, a lot of talk about the the war on Christmas. Um, that that uh, heathen types are trying to take away the holiday, uh, and um, you know, on, on the flip side, there are those who 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 don't like to say Merry Christmas. I, I'm perfectly comfortable saying Merry Christmas or having Merry Christmas said at me. Doesn't bother me at all. But there are those who insist. Got to say season's greetings. Got to say Happy Holiday. Um, and that some, I mean, have you had any pushback from the secular types who, again, want to remove Christmas from the conversation? Oh, though, yeah. Those but they, they, yeah, they would no. have trouble with a, a production of A Christmas Carol because it is specifically about Christmas. Has there been any pushback to that, uh, that effect? Never. Okay. I mean, this whole thing, we're on Christmas, I don't need to tell you. It's just a false flag out there, you know. It's... Uh, yeah, I mean, it all started with, uh, you know, saying season's greetings. Well, you know, kind of think about that for a second. If 
evidently these people who are crying war on Christmas thinks that Christmas is just a secular holiday because why else would they want to, uh, I mean, why would I say Merry Christmas to somebody who's Jewish or somebody who's a Muslim, you know, except if I, you know, if I, if, if I regard it as a, as a Christian holiday, why would I say that to somebody who doesn't belong to my religion? Right. So yeah, season greetings, just a polite thing to say to people, you know, yeah. and, uh, you know, this whole thing, no, we have not had any pushback whatsoever on a Christmas carol. Good. And, and quite frankly, I've never heard, I've, you know, I've never heard it. And I hope it never happens because the right would just go crazy with that. <laughs> they would indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, it's, uh, it's, um, it's, uh, again, your ninth year as uh, Scrooge yep. in the, uh, the, uh, Iowa rep, Iowa, is Iowa Stage, stage Theater. Uh, theater I, I, I'm company, still getting used yeah. to the new name. Iowa Stage Theater Company's production of A Christmas Carol. Yeah. And if uh, folks in the Des Moines Metro, or again, if you don't, you don't necessarily have to be in the Des Moines Metro, you could be visiting no. the cultural and culinary crossroads of America, as you should. But uh, if you want to see the production, when and where does that happen, Richard? At, or if you just want to drive specifically to Des Moines to see it. We actually have out-of-town people come and see this production. Right. It is at the Stoner Theater, which is housed in the Des Moines Performing Arts, more commonly known as the Civic Center. And um, to get tickets, you go to iowastage.org. And the dates are, we open on January 9th, and it's a short run, January 9th through January January, oh, December, me, right? not January. December. Backtrack, December 9th. Yes, December 9th through December 18th. Right. Okay. And, uh, yeah, and it's, again, at the Stoner Theater in the Civic Center. Well, Richard, thank you and so much for joining us. I think us. you will, and everybody will enjoy it. Uh, one final word. We really try to stick with the story. We don't try to guess it up or laugh it up or anything. I mean, you know, it, it, the humor is where it's supposed to be. Yeah. But we don't miss the uh, the darker story in there either. Good. So. Well, folks, I've been talking with Richard Maynard of the Iowa Stage Theater Company about A Christmas Carol, uh, a seasonally uh, appropriate, but also, you know, a message that's re that resonates and is relevant for some of the challenges we are experiencing in our day and age and some of those challenges that we we deal with regularly on this program richard thanks again for joining Absolutely. us okay well thank you for having me so folks again this is ed fallon we're going to take a short break and i'll leave you with this uh you know the one guy that could give scrooge or trump a run for their money when it comes to well uh, scrooginess uh, is this guy right here you're a mean one mr grinch you really are a heel. You're as cuddly as a cactus. You're as charming as an eel, Mr. Grinch. You're a bad banana with a greasy black peel. You're a monster, Mr. Grinch. Your heart's an empty hole Your brain is full of spiders You've got garlic in your soul, Mr. Grinch I wouldn't touch you with a 39 and a half foot pole 
Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Remember, you can support this alternative to the shock jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business sponsor. Uh, check out the Fallon Forum website for details. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. If you live in Iowa, in fact, wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Uh, joining me now is author Jean Hackle. Uh, she uh, is, is the author of the book, uh, Teresa et al. It's the uh, story of a Minnesota woman who is prevented from having an abortion, even though it was arguably very much needed. Uh, and as Jean told me earlier, the book is also about healing the deep and bitter divisions in our country. Uh, Jean, welcome to the program. Thank you. Yeah, so... Uh, Tell us uh, a bit about Teresa et al., the background. Uh, let's start with that. Uh, is this book, I mean, it's pretty timely given what's going on with abortion rights right now. But where's the, uh, what's, what's your background in terms of where you're coming at with the book? Well, I started writing the novel on the day it begins, which is May 9th, 2018. And um, at that time, Roe v. Wade was considered what they call stare decisis. It was standing law, meaning uh, a legal press principle is established by precedent. And the most recent judges who have been confirmed, um, Brett Kavanaugh in uh, 2018, I think Nor Neil Gorsuch in April of 2017, and the most recent Amy Coney Barrett in October of 2020, um, they all said they respected stare decisis. Right, and right. that they believe that there was a right to privacy in settled law right. uh, as, as a result of the passage of Roe v. Wade so many decades ago. Um, yet, at the same time, even then, when I started writing the novel in 2018, I think people could see the writing on the wall. Really? And they knew that, oh, I think so, yeah. because yeah. Uh, at least I, I felt that it might be overturned. Yeah, me, me too. I think it took a lot of people by surprise, but I'm almost surprised that people were surprised given the makeup of the court. Exactly. Right. Exactly. If you were following the process, if you were listening to the confirmation hearings, you could just feel it. Mm -hmm. 
And so that was that was that expectation of what might happen is is what in part maybe led you to begin writing this book in 2018. Exactly. It okay. was it was a thought experiment. I, I said to myself one day, I, I've been writing fiction for many years, and I, I never really um, was happy with what I produced. But this time, something kind of took fire, I think. I, huh. I wanted to imagine what would happen if a woman could not get an abortion and were forced to give birth. And I used the metaphor of kidnapping. In my mind, kidnapping was a metaphor for the repeal of Roe v. Wade. And um, in Minnesota, in 2018, even today in Minnesota, it is legal. Abortion is legal. Right. But Um, not in many other states. In many other states, it is not. It's now fully banned in Wisconsin, South Dakota, Idaho, West Virginia, Kentucky, Missouri, Tennessee, Arkansas, mm-hmm. Oklahoma, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. And we're not That's f- a lot of states. And Iowa may not be far behind, given where our governor stands on this issue. That, yeah. That's right. So now, that now many the, uh, states are thinking about it. The woman in the book, uh, and not to, not to be given any kind of spoiler uh, moment here, but she, uh, her, her pregnancy is determined to be uh, deformed. Uh, and I can't remember exactly what the condition was, but it was seriously... The child has Down syndrome. Down syndrome. She finds that out at the very beginning of the book. Right. And um, it, it comes as a shock because she and her husband were happy to have this baby uh, in utero. And, and the last thing she wanted was an abortion. Um, but then she started to think it through, but she really wasn't allowed to because... Uh, people around her sensing her hesitation and worrying that she might abort the pregnancy intervened. Um, I said it in a community that was very pro-life, and you see throughout the the course of the novel that the the atmosphere of the community had a great impact on what happened even in law enforcement in the community was not eager to pursue this mm. case of a missing woman mm. is this, is the is the premise of the novel based on things you've observed in your world in your work in your community uh i know that there are sharp divides in every state and there are sharp divides here in minnesota i happen to live in a neighborhood in which i think more people are pro-life and pro-choice Really? Uh, even in Saint, even in St. Paul, even even in the city. Even in in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Right. I mean, you know, it it, it is a an issue that has riven the entire country. One of several. Um, yep. And this is why I wanted to examine it through some of the many fissures that we have in in our country. We, in in a way, we have never gotten over the Civil War. Hmm. Uh, we have so many divisions based on class and income and education. Uh, we see it in our politics. Uh, we see it in the divisions between the two parties and their inability to even sometimes sit down and talk to each other. Hmm. And we certainly see it when it comes to reproductive health for women. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, this began as a thought experiment. So I, I really wasn't sure when I sat down and started writing where it was going to go. But I wanted to create these characters, and while being true to the characters, see where they took me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I grew up in a town that was um, very Catholic, so I made the town Catholic because that is the, <laughs> um, 
that, that is the background that felt most familiar. Sure. Uh, those are the words that came out of the character's mouth as I imagined them. I, uh, one of my writing techniques was in the morning to exercise, and as I would do so, I would think of a scene, and almost as if I were seeing a movie, and I'd listen to people talk. And if they said it, I wrote it down. <laughs> okay, right, and, right. And so that's how the dialogue comes out. It comes out, I think, much of it kind of a synthesis of the way I've, I've heard people discuss these issues over the years, both back home in Wisconsin, I'm originally from Wisconsin, and here in Minnesota. Hmm. And I'm sure all in every state, I'm sure yeah. it's true in Iowa also. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the scenario you described, let me ask you one question. At, at what month, at what, at what point of the pregnancy was the uh, fetus determined to have Down syndrome? Uh, she got a, um, in, in the story, she had a pregnancy test, um, a, a, a neonatal test that tested, among other things. It, it, is, it can now be done non-invasively through a blood test. Uh, where they um, can tell you what's what's likely. They can e examine mm, some okay. of the fetal cells in the blood. And so she thought that she was 10 to 12 weeks pregnant. As it turned out, she was a few more weeks more. She, she had misjudged, which is very common in a sure. pregnancy. People, people often talk in terms of abortion about um, where you are in the pregnancy. Um, and, and that is a guess. Right. Even doctors are often guessing by the size of the head of the baby sure. in utero through, um, through a, 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 a non-invasive test. Uh, and uh, so Teresa thought she was between, between 10 and 12, but she was really a few weeks more further along than that, which is why when the baby was born, it had a chance. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of giving things away here, but... Um, uh, yeah. So anyway, I mean, it's, it's it's not it's not a it's not an inconceivable scenario uh, with all all sorts of uh, possible twists. I mean, shortly after the uh, Supreme Court ruling earlier this year, uh, we heard we learned about a, a ten year old in Ohio who was the victim of I can't remember whether it was rape or incest, but either way, appalling. And, and it was both. It was, it was she both. Was oh, raped by her father. Double appalling. And then I she, remember that she had she was not she had to leave the state. Yes, in order they to had get to take her and, to and state. Indiana, of course, but we're now that would be impossible even now. It's just the the whole thing is getting uh, it's it's scary how how um how invasive some in government think they have a right to be in a decision that is entirely personal uh, and entirely entirely the, the responsibility of well. At least one person, maybe if, if there's a relationship there with the father, then yeah, we we, should, we, we would assume there's a, there's going to be a second opinion involved in that too. But but primarily, we're talking about one person with their body no longer being able to make a decision that is so basic that it is it is incredible to me that we've come to this point. And as you said, Roe v. Wade had been the law of the land for over 50 years, and now That's it's right. all changed. And let me ask you this: uh, I mean, in, at the federal level right now. We've got the U.S. Senate, bare margin, controlled by Democrats. And so we won't, we won't expect any, any effort there to overturn, to further erode abortion rights. But it's not inconceivable that in 2024 there could be a Republican president, Republican Senate, Republican House. Have you thought through, I'm, I'm guessing you have thought quite a bit about, what might transpire either at that level 
or at the U.S. Supreme Court level where they've already indicated their willingness to, to again, throw out 50 years of precedent with Roe v. Wade. What, do you, what is your sense from having thought deeply and written deeply about this topic as to what might happen going forward? I, I'm very concerned about a number of rights that have to do with privacy. Um, issues of privacy have come up for many decades, um, going back to when Robert Bork was being, um, he was in confirmation hearings and someone asked him about a, um, a lawsuit that had to do with contraception. It was Connecticut versus Griswold. And he stated then that he did not believe there was a right to privacy. Recently, Clarence Thomas referred to that when he suggested that other issues beyond abortion should be looked at in terms of whether or not Americans have a right to privacy. Uh, the Connecticut versus Griswold case had to do with a state that back then, in the 50s, outlawed contraception so that the purchase of contraceptives or the mailing of contraceptives into the state of Connecticut was illegal. And that law was challenged in the courts. Mm, no. And Robert Bork stated in his confirmation hearings to be a Supreme Court justice um, that he did not believe there was such a right and that he would have voted, indicated uh, that he would have voted against um, the plaintiff in that case. I think it is possible uh, given the movement against the individual rights of women, which is something so antithetical to the way Republicans talk about how they feel about Americans' rights as individuals, the right to own guns, for example. Right. Um, I think it is conceivable that the current court, as, as, as it, is, um, uh, it is now constructed, will relook, will re-examine other laws having to do with privacy. And uh, even contraception could be in danger as, mm. as a right. Now, I know and, that so after, after hearing what Clarence Thomas had to say following the, the Dobbs ruling, uh, people were concerned that he and others on the court might be moving toward uh, reconsidering gay and lesbian couples' right to marry. That also, but, that also, yes. But the, the, U, the U.S. Senate, and with, what, 13 Republicans, including one of our two Republican senators here, uh, Joni Ernst, voting with Democrats to basically provide some, some protection for that right, uh, that, seems to, that, that seems to be off the table. But, again, it seems to, be, it seems to me, at any rate, that the primary target right now is, uh, is women. Uh, yes, I agree with you. <laughs> which is, is uh, you, you know, and that's, um, even though it's appalling and even though it's doing real damage right now in real time to real people, it's, um, I, look, I try to look at the big picture and I say, this is, this is over, they, they have overshot uh, what they are able to accomplish and hold on to. You know, just as prohibition went way too far and there was a backlash and that amendment was repealed, not too long after it was established. Uh, I don't think this is going to last because most people do not agree that a woman should have no right to decide what to do when it comes to the, in the, the life and well-being of her fetus. And, that, and, and especially, I mean, it's just, it's just incredible to me that there are people who believe it's okay to, uh, to prevent that woman from having that choice, even in the case of rape or incest or deformity yes. or, or, yes. or health of the mother. I mean... 
that's going so far that there is going to be a backlash. In fact, I would argue, Gene, that I think there already has been a backlash. And while we didn't see it in Iowa, and I'm not sure what happened in Minnesota, we saw it nationally. I mean, the prognosis for the election uh, this month looked a lot worse for Democrats than it turned out to be. And I think a big part of why that happened was because of the growing concern over the erosion of abortion rights. Would you agree with that, or do you have a different perspective? Yes, I, I would agree with you, and I also agree with your analogy to prohibition. It, it is very hard for a political party to succeed in this country when they go against the majority will of the people. And uh, they are going against the majority will of the people. I think, especially in Kansas, that was evident. Mm, right. When, when the voters in Kansas, including mm. people in the western counties, um, that are more conservative than eastern Kansas, um, when they agreed, I think that Republicans in Kansas were quite shaken up, and I think Republicans nationally were shaken up by the, the vote in Kansas. Yeah. This was before the midterms. Well, I think your book is timely. If they want to learn more about Teresa et al., uh, where do they go to learn? Uh, I have a website. It's jeanhackle.com. Uh, J-E-A-N-H-A-C-K-E-L.com. dot com. Okay. That's right. And All right. Uh, it's a website that, that there are four different pages to it, and it talks about the, the novel right. in a way that doesn't give away too much of the plot, but talks about what I'm trying to achieve. Well, I think given the uh, given the current political climate, your uh, your book was very timely. So. <laughs> Uh, thank you for joining us, Gene. Folks, we've been talking to Gene Hackle. And when we come back uh, from a short break, again, this is Ed Fallon. Kathy Burns is going to join us, and we will be talking about lab meat. Yum, yum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Lipsham is committed to the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Mark says no matter how you plan or renovate your project, use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. A beautiful project will be revered, maintained, and valued, and is the best investment you can make for a future we all share. Learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. They are made out of meat. Meat? There's no doubt about it. We picked up several from different parts of the planet, took them aboard our recon vessels and probed them all the way through. They are completely meat. It's impossible. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. And yes, we are made of meat. But lab meat? Hold on for a second. First, though, remember, you can support this alternative to the Shock Jocks by becoming a monthly donor, or if you own a small business or run a nonprofit, you can become a sponsor 
of the program. And thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Gateway also has excellent catering and floral services. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. All right, so are you really ready for lab meat? Um, <laughs> well, we better be ready. We better be ready. This is a real thing, Kathy. This is a real thing. And just this past this week, is... USDA approved uh, production of a lab-produced chicken product. This isn't meat made from Labradors. Not from Labradors. Okay. It's produced in a lab. It goes by other names called, for instance, um, cultured meat or cultivated meat. Sounds like it's a very cultivated society kind of a thing. <laughs> but um, this food product is basically a chicken patty or chicken nugget type of food. We'll talk about why that is and what's available. So it's actually made from a, a cell of an animal, correct? Well, it's not, it's not it's not fake meat. It's not like your right. your we, your those those It burgers. is real meat. It is it really is meat. Um, so how is it made? It's it's uh, producers get muscle or fat cells by taking a biopsy from a live animal, and those cells are placed in a warm sterile vessel with a growth medium. We'll talk more about oh. the growth mediums. Then every 24 hours or so, the cells double. So, so no animal was harmed in the making of this meat? Well, I don't like to have a biopsy. <laughs> um, uh, I did read one article where it says, a harmless biopsy. I thought, I don't know. I never like I never like biopsies. I've had a few. <laughs> but, um, but yes, they do take the cells. And uh, um, until recently, in order to kickstart the cell division, about 20% of the growth medium had to be a fetal bovine serum, so a, a baby cow, calf? cow fetus serum okay. that they draw from the blood of the cow fetus. And the serum's really expensive. It's, it's certainly not a vegan product. So most producers now claim to have developed an alternative using genetically modifying yeast so, to produce that protein so that they can be vegan. Now, most of it is not vegan now, but they are so, working on it. So that. what's the point? I mean, vegans... Um, and I respect this. Aren't going to eat these products because if they don't, if they don't want to eat meat, period, they're not going to eat this. But what about somebody who is more driven by concern about animal welfare? That may be the audience they're targeting here. I think it could be. the the promote The proponents of this product offer some of what they call advantages. They're talking about environmental advantages. You don't have to use a whole lot of land to raise cattle, hogs lamb, et cetera. Um, but, I, you know, I think that's actually yeah. a good use of land. Yeah, I was going to say, what's wrong with using land to, to, to raise food? They're saying that it <laughs> is, uh, it, it, there are some studies that say it reduces carbon emissions or um, how, gas how emissions, how, but other studies contradict that. Yeah, I don't see how you could possibly reduce the environmental footprint of, of eating by raising meat in a lab, well, or the, anything in a lab for that matter. The thing about the labs is they have to be very big in order sure. to make it financially feasible for the producers to have any way to distribute the product and make a profit. And so these giant labs uh, are will be springing up. And to me, that says we won't have local food anymore. We're going to have to deliver it from a long distance. And that means trucking. That means shipping costs and use of fossil fuels to do that. So, so lab meat isn't just speculative. This is happening right now. It's very much happening. Um, it's okay. uh, it's different from regular cuts of meat that you have from an animal, that, which are a combination of fat, connective tissue, 
the muscle, uh, sometimes the bones, but lab meat is only the muscle or only the fat, and so it's a glob of cells. It's a pasty glob of cells. That's why most of it is put into something like a patty or a nugget. Oh, so you can't have a, a lab meat, a lab lab steak, for example. Not yet, but they, you know, they're working on creating some fibrous strings of these cell globs. And uh, emulating emulating the the structure of a steak, it could be the same product as a steak, the same cellular structure as a steak. But right now, it's not it's not the texture. It's it's really hard not to want to attribute a, a, an ulterior and very sinister motive to this. I mean, <laughs> it, this is it's very anti-farm. It's very anti-nature. It's anti-farmer. Anti-farmer. I meant that too. Yeah, I think and, so. And it's 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 centralized. You you really as you as you noted, Kathy, this inquir- this requires a lot of centralization of production. Yes. And and, it, and the 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 carbon footprint to produce the the structures that house right. these laboratories, the the equipment to and to sure. run that and the. The electricity to run that equipment. The most, uh, the most interesting thing I've read about this lab-based meat so far is that some people are getting really exotic about it, and they're thinking about, <laughs> you know, what? We don't have to just have our regular meats. We can now create meats from otherwise prohibited uh, beings like tigers or zebras. Oh. And so they're saying, you know, horse we, meat. We, well, people do eat horse <laughs> yeah, and right. dog. And zebra is just a horse with a fancy coat. Well, but that that to me is the weirdest thing, and it makes me think if they're, you know, they're going to go after this exotic meat stuff. You know, it's what might be exotic that is supposed to be kind of tasting like chicken. Things that are made of meat, humans. Us. So I don't know. So this is um, no clue if they're going. This is there. kind of the prediction of soil and green coming true. I hope I'm sort not of. correct. You tell everybody. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell them, Silent Green is people. We gotta stop them somehow. Wow. Okay. I've 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 lost my appetite, Kathy. We're not gonna eat tonight. Uh, hey, uh, thanks to our local <laughs> business partners, uh, a Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, and Dr. David Drake, Family Psychiatry. Thanks to our guests today, Joseph Gerson, Richard Maynard, and Gene Hackle, and to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Back next week, folks, with another hour of cutting-edge talk radio. <laughs>